to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. kind of a breathless quality to it. It is very close, at least in my reading, to a conspiracy theory there on the op-ed pages of the New York Times, a column titled, The Religious Rights Hostility to Science is Crippling Our Coronavirus Response. And like many conspiracy theories, it lays out a bunch of dots and then connects them all with multicolored yarn. And at the end, we're supposed to believe that Christian nationalists I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but Christian nationalists are behind the poor response to coronavirus in the United States. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to respond and take apart this op-ed piece in the New York Times titled The Religious Rights Hostility to Science is Crippling Our Coronavirus Response, Mark Hemingway, regular guest and senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. Mark, welcome back. Glad to be back. What do we need to know about the author of this New York Times op-ed? Well, she is the author of Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And if you uh, look at her past bylines, including other pieces in the New York Times, it appears that uh, she is a hammer, and every time she writes anything, you know, her nail is evangelicalism. I don't know what to say other than it appears she's just sort of a a one-note commentator who does not like American evangelicals very much. How do you account for what to me was kind of an overwrought hyperbolic tone in the piece? Well, unfortunately, I don't want to completely bash the New York Times because there are few big media outlets left that have the resources to do, you know, very good international reporting, like on what's going on in China right now with the coronavirus, like the New York Times. And the New York Times has done some very good coverage on on that level. But their opinion pages have increasingly in recent years, particularly in the Trump area, just descended into some sort of like, you know, left-wing hysteria, of which I think that this is very much kind of an example. Um, I don't know what to say other than this kind of thing among the people who read the New York Times, it gets a lot of clicks and it gets a lot of attention for them. And and I think that they unfortunately see that trading in some of their credibility as a news organization for some, you know, short time financial gain with with op-eds like this is something that, that they bought into. Stewart comes out of the gate with this, and I quote, Donald Trump rose to power with the determined assistance of a movement that denies science, bashes government, and prioritizes loyalty over professional expertise. In the current crisis, we are all reaping what that movement has sown. How do you respond? Well, I mean, look, it's just absolutely ridiculous. That's just, you know, hyperbolic generalization. I mean, if you're going to say stuff like that, you need to have a, a good examples of, of backing that up. And, you know, she goes through some, you know, she runs through some cursory examples in the, in the piece, but they're all pretty facile. And, you know, there's just a lot of things here, like, what about mainstream Christianity in this country really is big on denying science? I mean, is it because we don't believe that there are 58 genders, like, that you have the option of selecting on Facebook now? Is it because we believe that life begins at a conception? Is it because we believe that maybe some of the climate models we were, you know, and things we were told about global warming, you know, haven't panned out? These are reasonable things to believe, and yet any sort of science that 
isn't used in the service to push some sort of, you know, I mean, I, I, I hate to descend into straight partisan terms, but, you know, the kind of, you know, center-left political agenda that outlets like the New York Times seem to endorse. You know, anytime there's any inconvenient science on that, they say that someone who believes these things is, is some kind of science denier, and it's just absolutely, you know, ridiculous, you know. Um, and, and there's lots of other things here. I mean, I, I think that some skepticism of government interference in lots of areas of life is, again, a perfectly rational, healthy thing. And that even applies to the government response in this current crisis, which I think you're seeing lots of people on the right in this country admit that the federal government and state governments have a heavy-handed role to play in this situation. You know, conservatives believe in limited government, not no government, and I think this is one of the few examples where you actually see people docilely on the right rolling over and saying, okay, guys, you know, come on in, and if you have to do heavy-handed things to get us through this, we're assenting to it. I don't see any widespread revolt on the right over, you know, being told to stay at home so that people don't die. How would you describe Stewart's logic that leads her to the conclusion that religious people are to blame for the coronavirus crisis? Again, I don't know if logic is really just sort of the, the, the way to, to even, like, think about it. I mean, again, look, this coronavirus crisis arose in the middle of a large communist country that persecutes all religious believers up to and including putting them en masse in concentration camps. And then that same communist government disappeared. Public health officials, who we still don't know where they are to this day, for all we know they are dead and buried, who are trying to warn the rest of the world about this crisis. And somehow it's religious believers that are the problem. Again, as we see in this coronavirus crisis, as we saw in the 100 million people that died in the 20th century, the marriage of atheism or the desire to you know, use government power to suppress religion is far, far more dangerous than the quote-unquote marriage of faith and government. And again, by no meaningful sense, is there now or has there ever been anything approaching a theocracy in this country? To insist that that that's what's going on in in the current crisis and in the current White House is just insane. Just because Donald Trump has prominent evangelical supporters, and some of them, I will admit, like I think Jerry Falwell Jr., I think, have said some pretty crazy and unhelpful things about the coronavirus crisis, that doesn't mean that crazy religious leaders are pulling the strings in the White House. There's no evidence of that. What examples, you had mentioned a couple there, but what examples does Stewart cite to show that religious conservatives are to blame? Well, you know, she sort of, you know, cherry picks, the, the, or the phrase, I should say, that's in vogue on the internet is nut picks. She takes, like, the example of, like, a, you know, megachurch down in Florida where some, you know, megachurch pastor called people who were concerned about the disease pansies and said he wouldn't shut down his church. You know, and just, just things like that. I mean, you know, but yes, of course. In a country of 330 million people, there are going to be insane outliers in any major institution. Just because there's a crazy mega church pastor down in Florida or whatever, that does not mean that the broader swath of, of Christian America is, is anything less than, than compliant or otherwise doing their level best in terms of our massive charitable works to help us get through this crisis. So, you know, that kind of thing is, is just absolutely absurd. I mean, you know, I could go, I'm sure, spend five minutes on the Internet and find a bunch of choice comments by left-wing intellectuals that are unhelpful. 
so I, I just, again, this sort of thing is just really, really useless in terms of substantial analysis that actually helps us as Americans illuminate our understanding of, of this crisis and what to do about it. Do you think Stewart knows that she is picking outliers or kind of going to the lunatic fringe of evangelicalism, or do you think she believes that people like Jerry Falwell Jr. or the others that she cites in her piece are truly representative of Christians? I think it's that she believes that they're truly representative, or that at, at a minimum, to there's something about American Christianity in her mind that is is so rotten to the core that we're all tainted by some sort of bad, I don't know, doctrinal or cultural understanding that we all share that she doesn't. I mean, it's just a matter of, of, of simply not understanding or not liking something that a large group of people believe, and instead of trying to understand that, it, it's sort of, you know, seeing that as a threat. But again, this is, this is a phenomenon, I, I think, that, that doesn't apply exclusively toward the way the left views Christianity in this country, although, you know, it certainly does apply to that. I think that the, the sort of culture wars in this country are dividing us and in ways that are really unhelpful at, at moments like this. I mean, certainly there are elements of the right that unfairly paint large numbers of Democrats, the left in this country, with a broad brush, and vice versa, you know, and all sorts of, you know, weird sort of cultural subsections in this country that cast suspicious eyes on others. And I just hope that one of the lessons coming out of this crisis is that we get through times like this because we come together and because we all recognize that we have a common identity, at least as Americans, if nothing else. And I, I don't know, I just wish there was more emphasis on op-ed pages about messages like that, as opposed to this kind of, you know, unhelpful partisan or culture war bomb throwing. We're discussing a New York Times op-ed titled The Religious Rights Hostility to Science is Crippling Our Coronavirus Response. Our guest is Mark Hemingway of Real Clear Investigations. The Lutheran Witness Magazine interprets the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective, including Dr. Jean Edward Veith's monthly Worldviews column. Find out more at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness is available in print and online, cph.org witness. When we come back, we're going to take up this term that Stuart uses in her op-ed piece, religious nationalists. I've written a column for the latest issues, etc. journal titled Closed Communion, Biblical, Historical, Lutheran, and Loving. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Nancy Almodovar writes about her journey from the profound doubt produced by her former Calvinist beliefs to the absolute certainty of Lutheran theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Listen to what you want, when you want. 
You're listening to Issues Etc. Your sun-bleached felt church banners have seen better days. Held together with staples and superglue, they are a monument to Aunt Mabel's pastel-toned creativity from 1960. But it's time for a refresh. Ad Crucem has the solution that doesn't even need a Sharpie. We proudly offer Scapegoat Studios creations as well as Ad Crucem's original banners. Come and browse our wide selection of seasonal church banners. We also create banners and church signs to your design. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive word and sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide word and sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. Concordia University Chicago is a distinctive, comprehensive university of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We're committed to increasing LCMS faculty and staff members. Hi, this is Dr. Russell Don, president of Concordia University Chicago. If you're a member of our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregation, please consider joining our staff. And if you have a terminal degree, please consider joining our faculty. Send us an email at human.resources at cuchicago.edu. Lutheran Talk. We have an ecumenical responsibility to hold forth the scriptures and to bear witness to grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere in 2020 with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We are responding to a New York Times op-ed titled The Religious Rights Hostility to Science is Crippling Our Coronavirus Response. Mark Hemingway of Real Clear Investigations is our guest. Mark, near the middle of the op-ed piece, Stewart uh, introduces her favorite boogeyman, religious nationalists. What is a religious nationalist in her way of thinking, and how do you respond to the assertion that they form the core of Trump's base? I mean, I think the way that she's defining it so broadly, again, it's, it's very Manichaean, the way that she, she frames it. You know, she goes, you know, she, you know, she says that, and ironically, it's very Manichaean because she views it as the opposing side is, is Manichaean, as viewing everything between the party of life or the party of death. I don't think that it's, again, exclusively the right that is guilty of seeing things in black and white here in ways that are necessarily unhelpful. And on the other hand, when we talk about the examples she specifically used, like party of life and party of death, I think there are a handful of issues like abortion where there is no sort of getting over the fact that one side of the country is, while they may not be evil themselves, is, is tacitly engaged in, in supporting a practice that is itself evil. And, you know, it's our job as, as Christians to not necessarily compromise that issue and help those people see the light in a way that they can find forgiveness for what they're doing. Anyway, that's all a very sort of long-winded way of saying that she just simply is basically saying that anyone who's on the right in this country that has a patriotic impulse and also attends church is somehow, quote-unquote, a religious nationalist. 
nationalist is one of these like very sort of like loaded terms. I mean, I saw a lot of people on the left seem to want to defend it as being tantamount to being, you know, national socialists or something like that. But the reality is, I think one of the lessons we're learning out of this crisis is that to some degree, nationalism does matter. Obviously, we're at a time here where Mexico just put 130 million people on lockdown. Being able to control the flow of borders on our southern border might be something that we care about. You know, having some sort of, you know, if you're looking at the struggles within the European Union to share supplies and things like that, having a clear and understood sense of defined borders and what's in particular countries' best interests while at the same time engaging in a, in a spirit of international cooperation is something that we really need to sort out. I mean, I think globalization and some other things have erased those definitions in, in ways that are unhelpful. So we need to think about ourselves as Americans and pull together as Americans and, and then what that, that sort of means in the long run, if, if I'm making any sense at all at this point. You had mentioned she raises the issue of abortion. What side of the abortion debate actually has the science on its side? Well, yeah, I already kind of went into that. I mean, this is like the classic example of, you know, science denialism on the left. You know, you say that life begins at conception, and you get all sorts of, like, crazy hand-waving. Um, and then, but the thing is, it's not even life begins at conception. You can, like, keep on moving the goalposts, like fetal pain and other things like that, as you progress along pregnancy, and yet they're still denying it at, at every point in time. I mean, the, the, the left-wing position now, the position of the Democratic Party right now on abortion is effectively life does not begin until that child leaves the birth canal and draws breath. And even then, that is now being disputed in, in lots of instances. There have been cases where members of Planned Parenthood have like publicly argued for defending infanticide. And Ralph Northam, my governor here in the state of Virginia, has basically publicly argued in favor of infanticide or saying that that is some kind of like legitimate option. So, yes, I mean, that's, that's sort of the classic e- example here. And one reason why I think people on the right get really frustrated with these sort of like lazy cliches about science denialism, never mind that if you look at Christianity historically, it has played a tremendous role in advancing science and supporting science through the centuries. Proponents of abortion routinely oppose things like ultrasounds before abortions being shown to the mother and the more detailed imaging that's capable now. They don't think that that piece of equipment needs to be in an abortion clinic or that woman needs to see that image, but isn't that just basic observation, empirical data, and science itself being opposed? Absolutely correct. Because you know, once you actually see what it is that you are dealing with as a mother, it becomes harder and harder in any sort of moral terms to make these sort of science-denying, these empiricism-denying arguments that it's not a life that's growing with inside the mother, and, and therefore there's nothing wrong with terminating that life. But yeah, no, that's exactly Exhibit A. Uh, the same thing with we see where they fight tooth and nail for any sort of you know safety or you know restrictions that apply to, to abortion clinics. There are all kinds of like laws in terms of how you operate medical clinics in this country that, depending on where you are don't apply to abortion clinics. Like somehow all of the safety guidelines and stuff we would normally insist upon for places that, you know, do surgery on people don't apply to surgical abortion clinics. And it's, it's absolute madness that they get away with this. Stuart writes, quote, Mr. Trump did not invoke Easter by accident, and many of his evangelical allies were pleased by his vision of, quote, packed churches all over our country. What is she talking about? 
Well, the president, of course, came out and said that he would like to see, you know, the country, you know, up and raring to go by Easter, which subsequently they have walked back. They have said that it was an, you know, overly optimistic vision, essentially, that the country be able to open up again. But having said that, I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's kind of absurd to suggest that this is somehow wrong to see Easter as a date where the country could open back up again. I mean, it, it's symbolic on a, on a major level, I think, you know, even for people who aren't religious in terms of what it means in terms of rebirth and the situation that we're in. And I also, you know, coming back, you know, rising from the dead. These are important, I think, metaphors for people to have in their mind right now. And similarly, look, at the end of the day, it's still just a majority Christian nation, even if it's, you know, a largely a nominal Christian nation anymore. Easter is still a very, very important holiday for, you know, most of the country. And the idea that we would want to be in a position to celebrate that um, with our friends, neighbors, parishioners, family members is a wonderful image to have in our head, even if the president was unfortunately optimistic about that. She makes several allegations against the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar and Housing and Urban Development Secretary Dr. Ben Carson. She essentially says they've turned their departments into religious ministries. How do you respond to that? I mean, again, it's the same thing here, where we have this situation where under the Obama administration, we saw the federal government using the power of federal agencies to go in and target religious believers and do things like, whenever possible, spend federal money and resources that come from my tax dollars and your tax dollars and and the tax dollars of millions of Americans who don't want their money going to horrors like abortion. And somehow that was never considered an abuse. But where we have in the First Amendment of this country the right to religious association, and I think with that, you know, sort of the implied right of sort of not being forced to support or associate yourself with religious beliefs that you can in good conscience support, that is somehow un-American in their eyes, that, you know, you would insist that the federal government get out of businesses that are controversial like abortion and, and have all that stuff, if it's going to exist, be privately funded. But, you know, to her eyes, somehow that makes us anti-science and anti-American. And I, I just don't even know what to say to that. I mean, I think it's completely the opposite. I mean, I think part of the concept of American freedom is freedom to religiously associate, which implies the freedom to religiously discriminate. And that means that the government does not take my money and give it to causes that would cause me a great deal of pain as a religious believer to do that. And we have a long tradition of accommodating that. I mean, that's the reason why we have conscientious objectors in the military for crying out loud. And, and the idea that somehow it's un-American to want that is, is ridiculous. It's the exact opposite. With about 30 seconds here, Mark, does the Christian nationalist movement described in this piece in the New York Times by Stewart exist? No. Like I said, I do think that people are rediscovering what it means to be, quote-unquote, nationalist in healthy ways. I do think that borders, for instance, are good. Like, we're at a time right now where being able to control the inflows of people, you know, through our borders is vitally important to our survival in terms of who lives and dies. So, yes, nationalism in that sense is good. And pretending that things like borders don't matter, like a lot people have is bad, but that doesn't mean that we believe in some sort of, you know, America uber all us vision that is going to lead us to, you know, invade other countries, and that's the implication here.
Mark Hemingway is senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. You can read his columns at our website, issuesetc.org, and click the Talk On Demand archives page. Uh, you can also follow Mark on Twitter, at Heminator, that's at H-E-M-I-N-A-T-O-R. Mark, thanks. Thank you. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series on the Lutheran, on Lutheran Catechesis, talk with Pastor Peter Bender about the healing of the paralytic in Matthew chapters 9 and 10 and the Office of the Keys. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Hey, Todd, what have our listeners noticed first when visiting the LPR studios? Definitely the small size and the dirt. Well, not anymore. Thanks to our friends at the Cleaning Authority. They've turned this man cave into a space that meets even our wives' approval. Whether it's our office or your home, the Cleaning Authority is your cleaning service provider in the St. Louis area. To schedule a free estimate or to find out more, visit thecleaningauthority.com. Thecleaningauthority.com. The third commandment teaches us to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We do this when we hold God's word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Jesus invites the weak and heavy laden to rest in him, our true rest, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This weekend, rest in Jesus as you hear his word and receive his gifts. If you are in Southern Illinois, you're invited to join Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstadt to rest in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn more at trinitymilstadt.org. The Holy Trinity addresses three important things for the reader. Dr. Carl Beckwith talking about his book in the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic series, The Holy Trinity. It explains the difficulties we face in confessing the Trinity in our world today. It shows how Scripture carefully and decisively presents the Trinity, and it rehearses the sound pattern of words used by the Church to clarify and defend the witness of Scripture. Learn more about the Holy Trinity at lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. The Substitute Organist Service, aptly abbreviated SOS, really has come to our rescue. Pastor Jim Holowatch of Christ Lutheran Church in Jackson, Mississippi. With the ever-growing shortage of skilled musicians in our community, we were approaching a real crisis. But thanks to the Substitute Organist Service, help is always just minutes away. With its easy, intuitive interface, friendly customer service, and outstanding musicianship, you really couldn't ask for more. You can find out more about the Substitute Organist Service at churchmusicsolutions.com.